Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things it can do for people and the planet. My name's Kevin Fulta. I'm a professor at the University of Florida, one of your top 10 public universities. So that's us. Last week, there was more news about glyphosate. And glyphosate is a chemical that has a tie-in with biotechnology because of its use on some biotechnology-altered uh, crops. So namely, things like corn and soy, sugar beets and canola are treated with glyphosate as an herbicide to help separate the plants that we want from those that we don't want. And it's a convenient way, a safe way, and an inexpensive way for farmers to be able to control weeds on the farm as part of an integrated weed management plan. Now, I do say safe because for 40 years, this chemical has enjoyed a very positive safety record. Now, this has started to erode in the last several years, not because of more good science, but because what I like to call the murder of a molecule. We see a concerted effort happening on behalf of activist groups and others that are starting to really develop or at least cling on to small reports that actually malign what this molecule does and doesn't do and actually paint it very negatively, sometimes associating it with cancers. This has been really emphasized over the last year, and now we're starting to see more and more um, what look like scientific reports that are tending to support those hypotheses. And so it brings us to an important point. Do these reports carry weight, and should they be taken very seriously? Or are these somehow falling into uh, a category of suspect science, and perhaps even kind of a, a selective use of science to support a hypothesis that this chemical is somehow related to some sort of disease. Uh, just this last week, there's been a couple of different headlines. Uh, CNN says, common weed killer glyphosate increases cancer risk by 41%, study says. High levels of weed killer significantly raise risk of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, shown over at a radio station or TV station in Washington State. Link between common weed killers and some cancers. Um, and just over and over again, and if you look even in, in the anti-GMO and anti-glyphosate world, it says analysis shows exposure to Monsanto's glyphosate, based around up, increases cancer by more than 40%. Now, if you read those headlines... And then this particular clip from the TV. Weed killer be increasing your risk for cancer. All new at 10, a new study says yes when it comes to Roundup. Fox 4's Anna Cole shows us why the study says it's dangerous and how Southwest Florida is involved in the fight against it. Picking up weeds by hand might take longer, but it's safer than using chemicals to do it. We like to stay chemical free. 
A new University of Washington study shows the chemical glyphosate found in weed killer and pesticides such as Roundup can increase your risk of cancer by 41%. This study claims more exposure to the chemical gives you a higher chance of getting non-Hodgkin lymphoma, a cancer in your lymph nodes that attacks the immune system. Tiffany Henson, with Nursery Palm City in Cape Coral, says this chemical can easily spread around, which is why they don't use it. Even the lightest of overspray can get caught up by the wind and get onto other plants, so that can kill, kill it easy. Former Southwest Florida resident Michelle Stevens is suing the maker of Roundup, retailers, and Charlotte County for using this weed killer and pesticide, claiming that it made her and her neighbor sick. She isn't the only one. In the past few years, CNN has reported thousands of people have filed lawsuits against Monsanto for the weed killer. Tiffany says people need to be more careful before using a product without knowing what's in it. When you don't know what you're putting in your own lawn and you don't know the science behind it, it, there's always risks with it. Monsanto responded to the study by saying it was a statistical manipulation and that there was no valid evidence to prove this chemical is carcinogenic. In the studio, Anna Coles, Fox 4. When you hear those particular headlines and that kind of treatment in our media, this is something that would scare the hell out of anybody who's ever picked up a bottle of weed killer just to clean up around the house. And that particular kind of rhetoric is very different from what we've understood the safety record of this product to be. So today to sort this out, I brought aboard an expert. I brought aboard Dr. Jeffrey Cabot. He is a retired senior epidemiologist in the Department of Epidemiology and Public Health at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. Uh, Thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Cabot. Sure. Delighted to be here. I think it's great that you're on board here. Um, mostly, well, we met originally back in probably 2015, uh, where you were debunking some claims around cell phones and cell phones causing cancer. And this was up in Montreal. And uh, then I realized there really is a lot of uh, work for epidemiologists to do in really analyzing what are these claims about effects of some sort of input like a cell phone or whatever on public health. And it, how much time do you really have to dedicate or did you dedicate uh, to dealing with those kinds of matters? Well, that's a good question. I became interested in trying to explain, trying to clue the public in to what I saw as very confusing messages that were getting put out by scientists conducting studies on, say, power lines or cell phones or uh, DDT and other things, a lot of which was going on. 15 years ago, in addition to just doing my uh, shoe leather and uh, basic epidemiologic studies on such things as smoking and alcohol and obesity and hormones, uh, of which I've done Uh, a lot over the past, over my career. Uh, In addition, 15 or so years ago, I started to write about these issues, which I found fascinating and which the more I looked into them, because I was involved in uh, NCI, National 
federally funded grants to study things like electromagnetic fields on Long Island and to study uh, pesticide use, DDT. And, um, and so I was, I was familiar with the science going on in these matters. And then I would read the reports that would come out about our studies or other studies, and there was just this disconnect. And I felt that as a practicing epidemiologist, I was in a good position. Also, I like to write, I like to speak. I felt I was in a really good position to say, now let's wait a minute. Let's take a look at what we know about power lines and cancer or whatever the issue is. And that was the beginning of, I wrote a first book, it came out in 2008, uh, called Hyping Health Risks that um, has been very well received. And a second book came out called uh, Getting Risk Right, came out in 2016. And all along the way, I've been writing articles for Forbes, Slate, and other uh, outlets uh, explaining specific, specific issues that crop up and get a lot of attention and cause a lot of anxiety. So that's been uh, that's been a sideline of mine uh, for for a long time. But I've always done it on the side, in addition to my day job, so to speak. <laughs> well, tell us more about your day job. I mean, uh, what is your background with respect to risk and cancer epidemiology? I've been an epidemiologist, uh, specifically a cancer epidemiologist, uh, for 40 years and have been on the faculty at both the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and the Stony Brook School of Medicine. And I've published uh, over 150 uh, peer-reviewed scientific papers on issues ranging from smoking and bladder cancer and uh, alcohol and oral cancer um, and on to many things, including diet, mouthwash use, um, hormones, and most recently, uh, obesity, which of course is an increasing problem uh, worldwide, and uh, insulin resistance syndrome, which accompanies uh, obesity to a large extent, and, uh, and its effects, uh, the effects of obesity on disease, various diseases, including cancer. Well, today we really wanted to focus on this report that came out last week uh, in the journal of, uh, or in the journal called Mutation Research. And the work by uh, Zhang et al., Z-H-A-N-G, brought about this uh, test of what are the what is the relationship between glyphosate use, so the chemical that is found in Roundup and other types of herbicides, and uh, and different types of, or specifically non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is the cancer which has been most widely implicated in this, uh, from suggestions from the media and from certain other reports, and uh, this report is a meta-analysis. So just to really help us understand what this is. What is an, a meta-analysis, and sometimes uh, how are they helpful? Meta-analysis is simply a statistical technique used to combine a number of relatively small studies in order to obtain a more stable uh, estimate 
therefore a more more stable and more credible estimate of an association. And this is because in a small study, just as, as when you do only a small number of flips of a coin, it's hard to tell is that a fair coin or, or not because you don't have much uh, you don't have much data in small studies um, you also are going to have much more turbulence or much more uncertainty because you don't have a lot of data so the idea behind meta-analysis is that if you combine a number of smaller studies into a super study, so to speak, compiling the data, then you will get a more credible idea of what the actual association is that you're interested in. So that, that's, that's the idea, and that's, that's sound. Um, and basically, uh, meta-analysis involves taking a weighted average of the results of the individual studies. Meta-analysis was originally used in medicine. After World War II, it became uh, statisticians and medical, medical uh, researchers realized that this was a useful tool for combining clinical trials, uh, small clinical trials, to, pool, to compile them uh, on such things as does aspirin prevent heart attack and questions like that, or what is the effect of hormone replacement therapy. That's how it was used originally. More recently, it's become increasingly, and this is part of uh, uh, an area where caution is required. More recently, it's become very popular for use in epidemiology and in studies which are observational studies. In other words, they're not, uh, they're not experimental studies the way a randomized controlled clinical trial is. They um, are just uh, taking data from the world, going and measuring various things in different populations and looking for associations. Um, and the final point would be that if you graphed the, the uh, production of meta-analyses over the past 20 years, it has soared, it's skyrocketed, and many of the meta-analyses are coming from Chinese researchers, and it's just very, very popular. So that's a, that's a lot about meta-analysis, but it is, <laughs> it is a uh, much-used technique which can be, which can be very uh, useful. I've seen that before. We've seen a number of them come out where you start to combine um, multiple analyses that ask about, you know, strengths and benefits of a given technology or a given approach. And, you know, and I, I always take them with a grain of salt because you have to be careful of what data are going in. You know, it really seems like that kind of um, the two problems, the the garbage in, garbage out problem, but also comparing apples to oranges or apples to apples or apples to elephants in a lot of cases. And and so that's what I think this needs a lot of clarification with respect to the Zhang study. They conducted um, this particular analysis, um, it looked like, um, case control studies. And so uh, what exactly went into this particular uh, analysis? I endorse what you, what you said. 
Kevin, and I sh would want to make the point uh, beforehand uh, that the crucial thing uh, is in doing a meta-analysis is that the studies that are being combined should be of comparable quality. That's the crucial thing. And, and your reference to apples and oranges and apples to elephants uh, speaks, speaks to that issue. The paper we're discussing by Zhang and colleagues uh, combined, took into account six studies. Five of those were what we call case control studies, and one was what we call a cohort study. To perform a case control study, researchers have to go to hospitals or clinics or registries to identify persons with the disease that they want to study. And these are the cases. In addition, they identify a comparison group, which is the controls, who are as similar as possible to the cases, except that they don't have the disease that you're studying. Once you have those two groups of people that you want to compare, you obtain an exposure history from the cases and the controls. Now, this a case control study is vastly cheaper and much less time-consuming than a cohort study. Because basically, it's it tends to be a survey, isn't it? I mean, have you, uh, you know, you have this disease. What are some of the factors? You know, did you eat French fries? Did you like diet soda? Did you use chapstick? Did you use castrol motor oil? I mean, is, are those the kinds of uh, uh, questions that may be asked in a case control study simply to try to identify um, statistically relevant associations between the case and the control? It is. And basically, you're doing the... the the crucial thing is identifying a uh, cases in a, in an unbiased way, which means getting all of the cases in a in a given area, basically, which is hard to do, and then finding selecting controls. That's the tricky part. That then you are basically doing a survey of both of them, and you do it in as as. Uh, careful a way as you can do it so as not to uh, not to show your hand, not to show the patients and the controls what you're fishing for, so to speak. So these can be done uh, very well and case control studies are, are useful and they've taught us all sorts of things. So it's not that because they're uh, cheaper to do and uh, can be done in a shorter amount of time. It's not that they don't have their uh, their value. They do. Just let me get in, mention uh, two, what two of the limitations of case control studies are. In, in a case control study, you're, by its nature, you're obtaining information about the possible causes of the disease after the cases have already uh, been diagnosed. And the problem is that the presence of disease among the cases can influence what they tell you about their past habits and their, their exposures. It can influence uh, what they tell you, uh, whereas this won't happen in the same way or to the same extent for healthy people uh, in the controls. Mm -hmm. And this difference 
can skew the results of your study, and it's referred to as uh, recall bias. One other limitation is, and this is critical for the paper we're discussing, and, and, and it's not appreciated enough, because these studies are conducted in the population at large, very few of the participants are going to have the environmental or occupational exposure that you're interested in. Now, I think that is extremely relevant to this particular study and to the case control studies that make it up. Um, you're, and especially when you start talking about very rare conditions that go along with it and uh, and the occupational exposures within. You can see we're trying to make a Venn diagram, make some circles overlap here that are mm-hmm. pretty small, pretty small opportunity to overlap. But what happens when we start to uh, increase to different types of studies like the cohort analysis? Can you explain okay. what that is and, and is how it differs from a case control study and its relative power in helping us make decisions? In a cohort study, which people joke about is sort of uh, is a cohort study is going in the direction that biology goes in. That is to say, you're taking a population that starts out healthy and you're following it for 10 years, shorter, longer, um, uh, to see what diseases develop. And then you can look back if you have the right information, when you enroll the cohort, uh, you can go back and see, well, what, what in the history of the people who developed the disease differs uh, strikingly from the history of the people who did not develop the disease. You enroll a large population with a known health status and you obtain a history of personal habits and exposures at the outset uh, in a cohort study. You then follow the cohort uh, for quite a number of years to identify diseases that develop. And one of the interesting points is that a cohort could be confined to a specific occupational group, such as teachers, firefighters, oil refinery workers, or it could include a sample of the general population uh, as the American Cancer Society did uh, in its uh, two cohort studies, which have been enormously important, or as the Framingham study did, enrolling people from a town in Massachusetts. So in the present case, uh, we're taught the one cohort study that was included Uh, is the agricultural health study, which began in the mid-1990s and followed a cohort of 54,000 licensed pesticide applicators in two states, Nebraska and Iowa, over a period of roughly 20 years. And that should have a lot of power. I mean, you're looking at 54,000 licensed applicators, um, a significant number of which reported to have used glyphosate during that time. So what you would see over 20 years and regular use of a, of a chemistry may give you some sort of hints on that. And uh, do, do you recall um, what the outcome of that particular study was with respect towards non-Hodgkin's lymphoma or any cancers? Yes, they reported in in the uh, Journal of the National Cancer Institute uh, in 2000. First of all, they studied many pesticides 
it wasn't only to study glyphosate. Um, there's a whole array of pesticides that they were interested in studying. And but they reported the results for glyphosate in 2018, and um, they reported did very detailed, uh, careful analyses of 20, 22 or 23 cancers. Okay, and uh, from lung and breast and prostate and ovary and on and on and on to what we call lymphopoietic. Uh, or lymphohematologic cancers, which include leukemias, lymphomias, lymphomas, and among the lymphomas, a major type is is NHL, which we should pause to define, uh, describe uh, in the near future. But um, the striking thing about that paper is that they looked at these 22 cancers, they were able to look at five groups based on their exposure, their careful detailed exposure information they got at the outset. And that is people with zero, no uh, glyphosate exposure. And then above that were people with the lowest group, lowest exposure, second lowest exposure, third lowest exposure, and high um, and highest exposure. So they were able to look at this graded, um, at the people who in the highest exposure group compared to people with no glyphosate exposure to really see, is there an effect uh, seen when you're looking at the people who have the most exposure? So this is, this is a, a very powerful uh, study. And uh, it's the kind of information that you really want to assess these, uh, to answer these questions. And the striking, the striking thing is, and I'll quote it short, in this large prospective cohort, so prospective means the population was followed going forward from the 1990s to the uh, 2000s, um, no association was apparent between glyphosate and any solid tumors or lymphoid malignancies overall, including NHL and its subtypes. subtypes. And the final sentence is, there was some evidence of an increased risk of uh, AML, acute myelogenous leukemia, among the highest exposed group that requires confirmation. So that's that's the way they present their results. Let me tell you, it's very striking uh, to me to see such a large study of uh, that um, across the board shows so little effect of an exposure to to something because because actually uh, things turn up even just by chance. You can get. If you do, if you look at enough, if you look at enough results and they're looking at 23 different um, cancers, uh, you tend to, things tend to pop up. That's just the way reality is. 
Well, and that's why I think this particular study plays such a pivotal role in the murder of a molecule, is because here is a comprehensive uh, prospective study that goes on for you know many years and shows zero association between uh, compound and the uh, uh, alleged disease that it would cause. And uh, this seems to be something that alone would let the air out of that particular uh, allegation or that particular conclusion. Yet this was not included in the IARC decision, even though they were aware of it. And uh, that was, you know, pretty clear omission. But those data that you just described in this really comprehensive study were also included in the Jang study. So what actually happened, you know, when, when, so they, Jang et al. did incorporate this in their particular work along with the case control studies. So what is the take on that and how did they integrate this into their work and get a different result? The point that needs to be emphasized again is, is that the agricultural health study, I'll call it AHS, was much more detailed and had much more reliable exposure information because it was because who were they interviewing? They were interviewing farmers, pesticide applicators, uh, whereas the case control study was uh, asking questions like, do you garden and do you use do you use what pesticides do you use when you garden and so forth? But they they didn't have as uh, they didn't have this um, highly specialized. Uh, group of uh, population. So the questions were different. Um, We don't really know that much about the exposure information uh, and what it means in the case control studies. So therefore, in combining, by combining the case control studies with this one uh, cohort study, uh, there are, this involves uh, some real problems. And we can, and and then uh, it seems, and we'll go into this. It seems that the authors really wanted to um, to emphasize the studies that seem to be showing the case control studies, four out of the five that seem to be showing a positive signal. Well, even those positive signals were marginal in most cases, weren't they? I mean, I think back to De Roos, two thousand three, and others that if they showed significance, it was pretty much close to the, to the uh, line of significance. Is that true? That's, that's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. And, uh, and um, I did a lot of, I did the typescript for this paper, the, the Zhang paper is 62 pages long. Um, and I read every word of that and, and, and studied it. I have not gone back to the, and I've studied the uh, the cohort study paper that we just talked about, but I've not gone back to all of the original studies. But the, a problem that we need to discuss in talking about this forty one percent increased risk is um, is which result they selected from those marginal results. But just in uh, broad strokes. Um, four of the studies showed a doubling uh, of the relative risk 
for those with some sort of, unclear, but some sort of exposure to glyphosate compared to people with no or little exposure to glyphosate. And three of those were statistically significant, but that but there there are still a lot of questions. And my guess is that if one went back and looked at all of the results, they might be a little less um, they might be a little less clear. But that's only a, that would need to be borne out. Well, I remember reading those back when they first uh, came out and and other reports. Um, that were happening at the same time, but were cohort studies. So the more powerful prospective studies uh, did not, by the same groups, by the same people, uh, they saw these slight associations, followed up on them with cohort analysis, and then said, oh, doesn't fit. Uh, mm-hmm. th- you know, do- doesn't confirm what we saw in the lower power study. And somehow those didn't make their way into the Zhang analysis. But yet right. the earlier um, case control studies did. And uh, so... What actually was the, or maybe you can help with this, because this is always something that I know people have trouble with. What is relative risk mean? And when they say it's a doubling of relative risk, what does that mean in real terms? Okay, this is a, this is a key question, and it's uh, never gone into uh, in discussions in the, in the media um, Relative risk, stress on relative, uh, is what you see, and that's what this 41% increased risk of uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma is. Uh, Relative risk is referring to the um, what the likelihood of developing diseases among people who say who smoke versus people who do not smoke. And for smoking, just to stay with that, uh, current someone who's a current smoker has a 20-fold increased risk re- and a relative risk uh, versus someone who has never smoked in their life. An ex-smoker has about a 10-fold increased risk. So that that's a big risk. Here, we're talking about, in these case control studies, we're talking about a two-fold increased risk, two-fold and as you suggested, Kevin, with uh, marginal statistical significance, this is sort of a borderline uh, increased risk. So it's not something to get uh, worked up about. It would merely be something to try to confirm in, in better studies. Um, so that's, that's relative risk. The thing you don't hear, once you... Once you hear a relative, a relative risk, as in the case of uh, this meta-analysis, we hear that this 41% increase, 41% increase means that if the association is real, someone with exposure to glyphosate uh, has a 41% greater chance of developing non-Hodgkin's lymphoma compared to someone not exposed. But... The point is that relative risk doesn't tell us what the impact is on the population. For that, we need to look at what's called the absolute risk. And in this case, the uh, absolute risk is uh, corresponding to the 41% relative risk. The absolute risk is that we would find, uh, let me back up and say that 
non-Hodgkin's lymphoma is a very rare type of cancer, uh, and it occurs in about 20 people uh, per 100,000 men and women in the, in the U.S., okay, 20 cases per 100,000. The, if you look at the, the absolute risk for uh, glyphosate use that this paper is coming up with, this would translate into eight additional cases of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma per 100,000 population in those who are exposed. So on top of the 20 cases occurring uh, normally, so to speak, uh, in the general population. But, but So what this means, if you stop to think about it, this means that nine... 99,992 out of 100,000 people will not develop uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma from exposure to glyphosate. So this is a way of really trying to say, wait a minute, let's put this in perspective. And if the authors of the meta-analysis had presented their finding in this way, it, you can see how it wouldn't have grabbed the same headlines. And, and if you'll excuse my, you know, I, one of the parts of the podcast is I really like to try to make this understandable for the listener who may not, you know, share your um, uh, prowess with respect to statistics. But yeah. t- so tell me if I get this wrong. Is it yeah. kind of like saying your chance of being attacked by a shark, you know, very rare event, but it goes up 41% if you're in the ocean? And it goes up uh, twofold if you have a pork chop in your mouth when you go in the ocean. I mean, it, it's, it's taking a very rare event and now saying when the conditions are right and when the setting is perfect, you have an opportunity to see an increase in the likelihood of that rare event happening. But it's still extremely, extremely rare, and we don't want to lose sight of that fact. So swim with a pork chop. You're okay. Right. That's, <laughs> right. No, it's a good, it's a good point. Well, that's 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 good. So if we think about this particular uh, meta-analysis, what do we need to know about this particular one uh, going in? And you know, what was the what were the the data points that they used and the data sets they used, the things they crunched to get their final outcome? Okay, this this leads to uh, a fascinating and a key point that. It, it took a lot of, it took digging, it took careful reading and, and uh, looking at the different studies to pull out. Zhang and his associates looked at these five studies and pulled out the, the relative risks that we talked about that were about an increase of a twofold increase in one in one of the studies there was no increase at all but then then they faced the issue of from the the huge agricultural health study uh, not only did they investigate um, 23 different types of cancer but for each cancer they looked at they presented five results okay uh, some of them Three are in the paper. Two are in the paper itself. For three, the three other results that they presented, you have to go to a supplementary uh, table that's on the web, and that one needs to go to if they, you want to look at all their their numbers and understand it. So, in other words, it's twenty three 
times five different results, relative risks that they got. So, um, so we're well up to uh, 150 or somewhere in that vicinity. All right. And this is important because when they, the authors of the meta-analysis had to pull out a number to put in their meta-analysis, okay? And let me see if I can read you the numbers. And what these, these different numbers were allowing for how long a period there was between exposure to glyphosate and the development of the disease. We don't know, that's called the latency period or the induction period. We don't know how long if when you're first exposed and you're exposed for 10, 20, 30 years, we don't know what the average uh, time interval is till you develop, uh, in this case, uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So for that reason, that's why they presented uh, what they called unlagged, so they didn't make any allowance for a time interval, and then a five-year lag, a 10-year lag, a 15-year lag, and a 20-year lag, okay? So they presented all of them because they, they couldn't say it's which, um, which scenario is more likely. Now, I'm going into all of that because the four of the five relative risks for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma that they presented w w had a relative risk of say 0.83 or 0.87 or 0.84 and maybe one was 0.92. Those are all below one. So there's no suggestion of any increased risk for those four scenarios. What relative risk did Zhang pick for inclusion to represent this uh, cohort study? They picked one, the w single one, that was above one, it was 1.12, all right? And that, that happened to be the 20-year lag, which, as I said, no particular reason to uh, believe that the average interval is 20 years, could have been 10 years, would have worked just as well. But if they had picked 10 years, they would have been using a number that was 0.83 or 0.87, don't remember. Now, remember, a meta-analysis is a weighted average of the risks in the individual studies. So what do you think happens if you put in, and you have to realize that the agricultural health study, the cohort study, is huge and has a huge number of cases. So that has more weight in this weighted average. So what do you think happens if you put in the relative risks that, that is 0.84 uh, as opposed to 1.2. Well, it's going to, uh, it, that would pull down the, what we call the summary relative risk, the overall red, relative risk uh, um, found in the, uh, the outcome of the meta-analysis. It would pull it down, and it might not even be statistically significant because the the 1.41, that's where 41% comes from, the 1.41 relative risk is uh, very close to being non-significant. So in other words, that's a, a long way of saying that it's pretty clear that the authors uh, wanted to find something positive 
and because they selected one out of the five results that would give them the most uh, give them the most mileage. And what's really interesting about that is that if you look at the uh, Dwayne Johnson case out in California, the groundskeeper yes. who did the lawsuit, uh, he yes. made the claim that the symptoms developed uh, thir- thirteen months or fifteen months That's after right. exposure. That's right. So that's right. so that doesn't fit very well with uh, with any of the timelines here that, according to this analysis, says that it takes 20 years. This is a good point to take a break. We're having a discussion about the recent paper in Mutation Research uh, about the meta-analysis that suggested that there was some association between glyphosate use and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, we're speaking with Dr. Jeffrey Cabot. He's a retired senior epidemiologist from the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, and we'll be back with more Talking Biotech in just a moment. If you've been reading on the internet lately, you know that the question has been raised about how the Talking Biotech podcast is funded. I can see why. I mean, this would come up again and again. It's a high-quality, professionally produced podcast like this. must depend on deep pockets from some major agricultural concern. I'm not sure they're getting your sarcasm on that. Well, I, I certainly can vouch for the fact that this is a volunteer effort. As the booth announcer for the Talking Biotech podcast, I get a lousy cup of coffee and my pick of the donuts from the box that Kevin doesn't want. That's it. But that's okay. This enterprise is not about making a buck, it's about sharing science. The podcast is 100% funded by Fulda personally, and no outside funding is considered. Go ahead, try us, send us a check for a million dollars, and see if you don't get it right back. The real payment for the effort is the flood of kind words, the growing numbers of downloads, and the great questions that we get from listeners like you. Thank you for listening, and now back to the podcast. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Jeffrey Cabot. Dr. Cabot is a retired senior epidemiologist in the Department of Epidemiology and Population Health at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. And we're using his expertise in cancer epidemiology in an attempt to try to understand this paper better. Um, you know, I, I have to admit, I looked at this and I, I felt the same way I always feel about papers in epidemiology, especially in a meta-analysis. It's, it's so far outside of our usual statistical uh, universe in terms of what's allowable to compare and not compare and, and, you know, what can be done. And it's so confusing, even for me, where I, I, I work in science. I can only imagine for people who are watching CNN and see the sensational headline, how they must feel. So thank you so much for your time to help us unravel this. Uh, The the one thing we have not talked about is what is non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and and how you know we talked a little bit about its prevalence, but can you tell us a little bit more about that particular disease? Non-Hodgkin's lymphoma is a cancer that starts in white blood cells uh, called uh, lymphocytes, which are part of the body's immune system. And it's important to realize because you never would know this, I'm sure, from any of the news reports that actually there are many different types of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. 
uh, many. It's not a single homogeneous disease. So that I mention that because that makes it even more difficult to study. In other words, it, it probably would never be able to do a large enough study to examine the different subtypes, but biology is so complicated to really understand what's going on. If you think something is a cause, you would need to look at the, the subtypes, but um, that's not where we are today. And as I said, each year there are 20 new cases of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in the U.S. Uh, per 100,000 population. The interesting thing is that the incidence has, the occurrence of the disease has not changed over the past uh, tw at least 20, 20 years. It's quite flat. It's not increasing, and, and um, that's important to note. It really is because it's saying non-Hodgkin's lymphoma is like saying non-dairy creamer. It doesn't tell you if it's the, uh, you know, French vanilla or the other hazelnut or whatever. It just tells you what it isn't. And each one of those specific lymphomas has a, has different characteristics, different presentations, um, different molecular events that lead to them, um, the ones that are right. understood. Uh, and so it, it really is a catch-all for the things that don't fit into this one category. And, you know, from my limited understanding of epidemiology and, and the way these things work, that people who come in with rare cancers, if this was really, if it really was causal to a specific subtype of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, you would think that you would see uh, something that doctors would quickly recognize as farmer's lymphoma or applicator's lymphoma or, or roundup lymphoma. You, you know, you would, you would see, you would, this would suss itself out pretty quickly because of the uh, rare nature of the disease and doctors' propensity to look for the causation. I mean, is it, am, I, am I way off base there? That's a, that's a really good point. And it does remind you, look, there was in, um, in Kentucky, there at the University of Kentucky, if I'm remembering it correctly, there was a uh, there was a researcher who identified uh, vinyl chloride exposures as the cause of a very rare type of liver cancer, uh, hemangiosarcoma of the liver, and this was at least 20 years ago, and uh, we found other things. So that's ex exactly right. Very often, if it's a rare enough tumor and a, um, an alert clinician is paying attention and is, in a, is near an exposed population, uh, that, that clinician may pick up this, uh, this rare thing, and we can learn a lot from it. But there's... there's uh, there's no signal of that nature um, uh, among people using glyphosate, as far as we can tell. Well, going back to the study then, if we start to look at the data that were compared, we're looking at these studies that had either no significant signi significant um, association, like the AHS, and then the smattering of case control studies. Now you have to start to compare what are the data in the one with the data with the other. And do you really see that the authors were comparing apples to apples here? Or was this really apples to elephants? I, I think uh, that was the thing that jumped out at me. Because of the 
problems in case control studies, which we referred to. Uh, it invites bias. It invites people to say, oh, yeah, if you're a case, you, you tend to sit in your hospital bed or at home and you wonder what gave you this, uh, this uh, scary disease. And so we have that bias in case control studies. We have to be wary uh, of it. And that, together with the poor measurement and the poor exposure, poor exposure data in the case control studies, and the fact that very few people uh, were exposed to the uh, to glyphosate, uh, the prime the factor you're interested in, those things combine to make the case control studies distinctly weaker um, when set against a huge cohort study whose reason for being is to get at our, is pesticide, is application of pesticides used in farming, is that increasing any type of cancer? And it's another strength that they looked at everything. They didn't limit themselves to the, the, the suspect uh, cancer. They have all these comparisons. It didn't increase leukemia. It didn't increase all lymphomas. It didn't increase uh, multiple myeloma and, and so on and so forth, or prostate, breast, or colon. So that, so this is a, a startling, striking difference. And you're trying to compare what is a Cadillac study with, if you know, the French De Chevaux, it's a car that you sometimes have to get out and push. It's two horsepower Chevaux uh, car. Um, there is this enormous uh, contrast between, uh, so uh, apples to elephants is, uh, is a good metaphor for what they were doing in this, in this meta-analysis. Well, what did you find favorable about the Zhang study? Was there anything in there that you felt was particularly strong? Okay, on on the positive side, I think they um, I think they did a reasonable job uh, of uh, the statistical analysis uh, of just uh, crunching the data from the studies. As we've said, I have I have some questions about. Uh, uh, not only the quality differences between the studies, but the, some of the selected numbers. But I think once they selected the numbers to represent the studies, I think they crunched the data in what looks like a reasonable fashion. That's about that's about um, uh, the main thing I could say on the on the positive side. But the big problem, obviously, is which numbers you choose to crunch. And, yes. you know, I, I sat with this a little bit and played with some of the numbers and looked at those other time points. And, you know, you, you and and even with that time point and that, you know, you talk about statistics and how these things can properly be done. You know, talk to me a little bit about that selection of that 20 year time point. I mean, is is that something that most people would do or would there be typically let's discuss all these time points because the data are available and and. Uh, and emphasize a some sort of risk quotient at the end based upon a wider breadth of analyses. Okay, that's a that's a very good question. What you would do if you were uh, wanted to be uh, unbiased and wanted to give an even-handed uh, look look at um, 
what is the range of results you're going to get, you would do you would do what's called you would do a secondary analysis or you or you would do as your primary analysis. You would say, look, we chose each of the we used each of the risk estimates, the five risk estimates they presented for um, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma because um, they didn't favor the authors didn't favor any one of them, and because we don't know enough to to judge which um, which time interval is uh, most uh, reflection reflective of the biology. So what they would have done would have been they'd have a little table, and they would have shown what happens when you use the uh, 0.83 relative risk, the 0.87, the 0.92, and the, there were two 0.83s or something, and the 1.12 that they used. They wouldn't just use that one. But I, I have a strong suspicion if they had used uh, the lower ones in the 80, uh, in the 0.8 something range, that their, um, their final result would not have reached statistical significance, and then no one would have, they wouldn't have been able to push it. So that's that's a pretty that's a pretty shocking uh, thing, but it becomes pretty clear when you when you look at it. Well, it does seem rather damning and and rather unfortunate because it if you do select this one specific time point, it 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 changes the interpretation and the overall feeling of 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 the analysis. And so is there anything else in the study that, you know, maybe the author's discussions of strengths and limitations of the work or, you know, or I should say limitations of the work, did the authors discuss the limitations in a way that was fair and reasonable that brought in um, all of these other potential variables? I have to be, um, I have to be straight about this. Usually, usually you review a paper and uh, usually you don't, you're not finding these kinds of things in the papers that I've been sent by journals to review. And I've done my share of, of reviewing. And, um, uh, and usually you can find all sorts of positive things. They had a large study. They had a carefully designed questionnaire. They had a good research question. All of the different points um, you can find that are uh, that should be mentioned as strengths that make the thing worthwhile. But I have to tell you that in the in their introduction, they give a slanted view of what is um, what. Uh, opinion is uh, in the scientific world regarding glyphosate. They slant that. They they only cite. Uh, they say that um, opinion is divided and so forth, but they don't mention that the International Agency for Research on Cancer (IARC) is really basically the only health agency among. Uh, seven, eight international and national agencies that feels that there's anything to worry about in glyphosate as it's used, um, as it's used, um, as instructed. So, so their, their introduction started out slanted. <clears throat> then they present their results, which we've discussed. And then they have a very long 
discussion, very, very long. This paper is three or four times as long as the, as the usual paper in our field. And in the discussion, I have to tell you that they go into, uh, for pages, they go into all sorts of secondary analyses. So if they went into, all, and those secondary analyses and discussions are mainly aimed at trying to imply that this agricultural health study, this cohort study with prospective facing collection of data, if you will, and huge numbers and huge detail, that, that this study must be missing something. That's one of the major um, messages that they're uh, trying to make in their uh, dis long discussion. Now, and th then they go into what they call sensitivity analyses and and things. They go into these abstruse things to question the agricultural health study. Well, why, if they're spending all this time and doing all of these uh, all of these secondary analyses, why didn't they show us the what happens when each of the five relative risks from the agricultural health study was used. I mean, you know, it's, it's pretty slanted throughout in different, in different ways. And I can give you another example, but I don't want to overstay my, my welcome. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad that you did at least mention that because there was a lot of those kinds of implicit uh, flags of bias that I noticed as well, that when you take what are unanimous decisions, are unanimous uh, regulatory decisions by independent uh, assessments all over the world and independent governments and all the uh, peer-reviewed literature, um, you take something that is a unanimous dis assessment of, of what this is and isn't, and now IARC being held as equal weight against all of the huge body of, of when uh, IARC is not a risk assessment. You know, IARC yeah. is a hazard-based assessment, meaning there's a shark in the water over there and the shark is dangerous. The risk talks about, all right, getting in the water with the shark. It, it it only it's a it has to be interpreted correctly, and even the IARC monograph, its a preamble, is very clear about that. And uh, yet, yet this blows up in the media, in in, uh, in a way that really has some severe ramifications. And so, what have you noticed about how this has been reported, and and what you've observed in the way in which this what is a maybe a questionable result and maybe a marginal result has been translated into uh, scaring the hell out of people. And this, I think this is a terrible, terribly important issue. And I'm biased myself because I wrote a book called Hyping Health Risks about a number of these um, scares, namely radon, um, does DDT and do other pesticides uh, cause breast cancer? Uh, or uh, automobile exhaust, do they cause breast cancer, uh, and, um, and several, other, several other topics, uh, passive smoking and um, power lines and so forth. So, so I'm, I'm biased, but I think it's a terribly important issue that it's really important for us to uh, clue the public in on. Because these kinds of things, this is a glaring example in its own way. But as you pointed out at the beginning, Kevin, uh, this there are many glaring examples. 
And here's, here's what I see going on. Um, scientists do studies of what they think is an important question, and they want their results to be meaningful and to get attention. Now, this is, this is only human nature, and scientists, we always have to remember, are human. Uh, but studies vary very greatly in quality, and very few studies that come out, and we see that on a weekly basis, we see these results broadcast on TV. There are very few studies that, that present solid results that are of any really direct use to the general public. Like, you really need to know about uh, glyphosate as a threat to your family and yourself. Um, and furthermore, we're becoming more, um, how should I put it, we're becoming more educated, we're becoming more aware that um, science is great and it has this tremendous potential and it's delivered amazing results. But at the same time, when you look at the two million plus articles that are published each year and you evaluate their quality, we're becoming increasingly aware that most published research findings uh, are either wrong or are exaggerated. Now, scientists um, have a difficult time obtaining funding. They work very hard um, and they have trouble drawing attention to their work, uh, whether it's important or marginally important or not important. And exploiting the public anxiety that's out there about whatever, whatever it is, chemicals in the environment, uh, contaminants, uh, acrylamide in coffee we've seen recently. You can't drink your morning cup of coffee without worrying. Some people would like us to uh, not be able to drink it without worrying uh, about getting cancer. Exploiting for a scientist who is, uh, wants to get, gain some uh, support for his or her work or attention uh, in order to get funding in advance, exploiting public anxiety about an issue can be can be very useful and scientists some some straight shooting scientists whom i love uh one guy uh pollution research air pollution researcher at uh, uc uh, irvine um came out and said it's let's admit it it's useful for us to have a uh, a frightened public public why because if you publish on this thing, you'll you'll get attention, you'll get funding, and uh, maybe a um, a health agency will embark on, uh, or the California uh, EPA uh, will embark on, um, you know, trying to ban whatever it is. Uh, so so that that's what that's what I see, and so what I what I'd like to see, and that's what my second book is about is realizing that there that science is a vast um, grab bag of of things and that we have to pay a little bit more attention to distinguishing the really life-changing the really enormous progress that's been made in in many areas uh, such as 
the wor- 30 years of work that has yielded a uh, vaccine against human papillomavirus, HPV, or many other things. Um, we have to distinguish carefully done solid work, which is not flashy, takes place out of the limelight, from work that is grabbing headlines. And, um, and the flimsier, it seems, the flimsier the work, the, of course, it turns up numbers, which can be used to, uh, to get attention. Yeah, and they remain cited forever. And uh, and and like the best example in my mind is the 2012 Seralini paper, uh, which you know we refer to as the lumpy rat paper. And you remember the rat that ate GMO corn, the rat with GMO corn with Roundup, the one that drank Roundup and no control—that was just the rat. Um, <laughs> but the three grotesque tortured animals that were paraded around on signs that. Um, you name it, that grabbed the public psyche. It changed public policy in Kenya, where they banned these technologies from people that needed them. Um, this scared people away and still does. And we can't flush that from from our uh, you know public uh, uh, um, you know zeitgeist. And then now we have new reports which have come out two now that have repeated those experiments and show you know what that's not true. <laughs> and guess how much time on CNN that got? <laughs> right, zero. So this is, you know, what you just framed is an excellent example, and I think it's only exacerbated by uh, university um, uh, communications folks who want to do their best job to make really strong arguments for how beautiful the work is, and they might blow things up a little bit more than there should be, you know, at even at the researcher's um, uh, disapproval. And uh, then you have the media that wants to blow this up and say, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. So we're going to talk about your, you know, increased risk of cancer due to coffee, herbicides, um, sunshine, whatever. Um, That stuff sells. And all of this plays right into the hands of the people who want to change the rules with respect to farming and chemistry because now they can vilify these things effectively. They've got a pipeline that's there. All they need to do is push that snowball down the hill and <laughs> and pretty soon it's taken out of town. Right. You know, and, and so I'm not sure how we can go about changing that. And, and other than having these discussions, hoping that uh, guests like you with expertise in these areas can help inform our listeners who are excited to share these ideas and hopefully share this podcast, because I think this really helped clarify things a lot. Um, If people wanted to learn more about what you do, um, where can they find you on the internet or on social medias? Uh, Where can they find your books? Okay. Um, I have a website, which is simply uh, Jeffrey Cabot. Uh, my name spelled with a G, G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y, and last name is K-A-B-A-T, Cabot, um, uh, dot com. So just one word, JeffreyCabot.com, and that has, uh, that has uh, my popular writings and my scientific articles and my, my books listed. There's also a site on Forbes, which is called um, riskomics, okay, fancy word, but if you just type in Jeffrey Cabot Forbes site, it will come up. And finally, you can either go to Amazon or you can go to Columbia University Press uh, and type in my name 
and you'll get descriptions and um, reviews of my my two books. And, um, and, and I'm on Twitter, uh, in and out on Twitter. <laughs> Try to... <laughs> Uh, take a take a breather from it uh, and uh, get back in and when if I have something to say but uh, um, it's a time uh, drain well but uh, you're also very well represented on Google Scholar and PubMed so anybody who's interested in what you do uh, in real life or what you've done throughout your career really should go there first to um, understand you know your competence in this particular area um, which is extremely dense and, um, you know, one other question that we always should ask in these particular, you know, it, on Twitter, since you mentioned it, all the allegations that you're owned by Monsanto. Wh- what's that about? Right. Well, as as I said, um, it's I've never even been called. <laughs> Maybe my feelings should be heard. I've never <laughs> even been called by anyone at Monsanto. Uh and so I certainly have not done any work for them or uh, any reviews or uh, been gotten any received any payment from Monsanto. So um, the, there's the American Council for Science and Health, which uh, this woman, uh, Carrie Gillum, uh, has claimed is uh, obtains funds from from Monsanto, and um, this is apparently is not true, but I'm one of uh, my relation to this organization, the American Council on Science and Health, is that I'm one of over 400 uh, science advisors to the council, and so this is uh, this is basically an honorary uh, title, and sometimes they'll ask me a question, a technical question. But um, this was a fairly lame uh, try to link me to Monsanto, which can't be done. Speak about linkages that can't be made, uh, that I invite people to plow through um, documents and try to find something. Uh, (laughs) Be careful of what you wish for. (laughs) Right, right, right. I know, I know, um, and I uh, Gassed. I'm aghast at stories like what you've been through. Yeah, it it it, it, it still hurts. Uh, you know, almost on a daily basis. So it's still a lot of fun. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Jeffrey Cabot, for joining us today on the podcast. I, I really appreciate your time and your exceptional clarity at helping us understand this very important uh, publication. So thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Kevin. And thank all of you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. You know, it's knowing that people are actually listening that really keeps us going. I say it like us, like my team of producers and website lackeys. Uh, It keeps me going. Uh, It's a lot of work every week to bring this kind of uh, material to you, but it certainly is a passion and certainly is a pleasure. And it's so nice to hear that it's appreciated. And I was uh, gave a lecture this week. out in the state and had uh, somebody tell me she explained to me uh, the episodes that she really enjoyed and it was a student in the class so uh, who I never met before so it's always fun to make those connections and know that this is making a difference and helping increase scientific literacy so thank you again for listening to the podcast and as always we'll talk to you again next week thank you for listening to the talking biotech podcast send your suggestions for guests 
comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. Right when you think that this thing has lost all the gas it it has, there's one more surprise. (laughs) You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.